Hello everyone, this is Kelly Reed from the SIOP Visibility Committee. I am very excited to welcome our 15th guest to the SIOP Conversation Series, Dr. John Boudreau, the Research Director for the University of Southern California's Center for Effective Organizations and Professor of Management and Organization at the Marshall School of Business. Prior to beginning our conversation, I want to remind you all that the majority of today's questions were submitted by you, our listeners, in advance of the broadcast. So thank you all for your contribution to the series. Also, a reminder that all episodes of the SIOP Conversation series are recorded and published as a podcast on iTunes and Google Play and are housed on the SIOP Conversation series landing page at the SIOP website, www.siop.org. Now I'm thrilled to welcome Dr. Don Boudreau, who is the Research Director for USC Center for Effective Organizations, and as mentioned earlier, is also the Professor of Management and Organization at the Marshall School of Business. Recognized worldwide as one of the leading evidence-based visionaries on the future of work and organization through breakthrough research on the bridge between work, superior human capital, leadership, and sustainable competitive advantage, John Boudreau is much sought after by organizations, businesses, and the academic world for his insight and innovation in the fields of human resources, human capital management, and executive development. His large-scale research studies and focused field research addresses the future of work and the global HR profession. Work automation, HR measurement and analytics, decision-based HR, executive mobility, HR information systems, and organizational staffing and development are all in his research wheelhouse. He is also a strategic advisor to a range of well-known organizations, including early stage companies, global corporations, government, and military agencies and nonprofits. A strong proponent of corporate academic partnerships, Dr. Boudreau helped to establish and then directed the Center for Advanced Human Resources Studies at Cornell University, where he was a professor for more than 20 years. He has authored more than 50 books and numerous articles and papers. Features on his work have appeared in Harvard Business Review, The Wall Street Journal, Fortune, Fast Company, and Business Week, among others. He was the recipient of the 2018 Heinemann Career Achievement Award from the Human Resources Division of the Academy of Management, the 2013 Michael Losey Award from the Society for Human Resource Management for Excellence in Research that has enhanced the human resource profession, and the 2009 Chairman's Award from the International Association for Human Resource Information Management for Lifetime Achievement in Human Resource Information Management. He is a fellow of the National Academy of Human Resources and the Society for Industrial Organizational Psychology and American Psychological Association. He holds a master's degree in management and a PhD in industrial relations from Purdue University's Cranert School of Management. As always on the series, I am out of breath reading through that list of tremendous accomplishments. John, I'm so excited that you could join us today. Thank you. Well, thank you, Kelly. I'm a bit out of breath myself listening to <laughs> that introduction. It's far more, far more glowing than uh, I probably deserve, but I really thank you for doing that. It's a great, great pleasure. and. Um, an absolute honor, as it always is, to be included in the list of folks that uh, you've already interviewed. Thank you. Well, thank you again. Very excited for the conversation. So let's dive in. So to start, John, maybe just tell us about your path to your current career and what led you to, to this field. So it's an interesting one, I, I guess, I, I maybe a little dissimilar from some of the folks you interviewed before. So I really uh, didn't have much of an experience with I.O. psychology. I, as an undergraduate, I 
uh, thought I'd be a, you know, I was playing trumpet and thought I might be a musician and it became kind of clear that was a, took a little more grit and resilience than I had. Um, so I made my way over to the business school and I had always had kind of an interest in social sciences anyway. Um, and uh, psychology, and that was in New Mexico, at New Mexico State University, and they had a great psychology department, but I think today we would say it was kind of focused on kind of cognitive psychology and uh, not a lot of I.O. But I did have two great professors, Art Watley and Dan Costley, over in the business school, teaching what would today be called HR, but was then probably called work and organization. Actually, we might need want to call it that again. And they had uh, great advice. I went in and, you know, I was having a lot of fun in their classes, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later probably. Uh, and I said, you know, what should I do after my undergrad? And they, I loved, I think it was Dan Costley said, well, John, you're a very good student, and that doesn't predict a lot, but we know it predicts that you'd probably be a good professor. So maybe you want to think about getting a PhD and being a thing called a professor. And they had great advice. They said, so go get your PhD, and it should be, a mix of IO psychology, economics, and management. And, and this is back in 1977. They said, you be sure and get an MBA on the way because you'll need that credibility if you want to work in this field of, of HR. And fortunately, Purdue had a perfect program with a one-year MBA on the way to a PhD, and it was housed in the Cranard School of Management with um, colleagues like, you know, eventually Joe Ullman and Jim Chellis and Jim Dworkin and John Baum, all in kind of the labor relations area and HR. And then, of course, working closely with Chris Berger and Gene Stone as I began to get more into the interface between psychology and management. Um, so that was sort of, um, that was sort of my, uh, my path to, uh, to, to, you know, the beginnings of, I really got introduced to IO psychology in the psychology department at Purdue as part of my PhD program, walking back and forth between the business school and the psych department. That's fascinating. And with uh, the large number of IO PhDs who do go into business schools and teach that, I mean, that's, that's amazing that you were on kind of the forefront of being able to have both of those disciplines as part of your, um, part of your graduate training. Yeah, I must say the idea of, um, you know, the, as much as I admire and love uh, the field of IO psychology, uh, the, the, that, that advice from those two professors to find a, find a place that would let you ha have a foot in the business side and a foot in the psychology side was really turned out to be just very, uh, very good advice for me and, and really a defining element of what turned out to be my career. Well, following from that question, listener Kieran M. submitted the following for you. Uh, what are some fundamental books or articles <laughs> that have shaped your thinking process? So that was a great question uh, from, was it Kieran, I think? Um, Kieran, mm -hmm. that's a, Yeah, that's a good one and made me really think back a bit. Uh, and it's kind of a, a full circle. So um, I think I'll say, you know, as we, and I'll maybe talk a little bit more about the career path. So when I was a undergraduate student, and I, I think it was in Dan Costley's class, but it might have been Art Watley's, that at New Mexico State University in southern New Mexico, where I grew up, there was this book by uh, Jim O'Toole and Ed Lawler called Work in America. And it, it, at the time, Jim, I now know, Jim, I have had the privilege of knowing Jim and Ed very, very well as colleagues in the Center for Effective Organizations. Of course, I had no idea who they were at the time, but the book Work in America was absolutely fascinating to me as a sort of broad look at how the workplace was changing 
new ideas like empowering teams, et cetera, um, really, really began to stick with me and they were quite fascinating. Now, I had no idea if I could ever make a humble contribution to it. But um, having, you know, my father was a lifetime employee of the IBM Corporation starting in the 50s. And so my growing up period was in this amazing relationship with his company. They had Christmas parties for the children. He had amazing benefits. Uh, he ended up with an amazing pension. Uh, again, full circle, once I got to Cornell, I had the opportunity to actually work with and meet people who in the head of HR and others. And I, at the time then, I'm reading Work in America, and I'm talking to my dad about his work in IBM. And one of the things I'm noticing is that even though IBM is an absolutely terrific company, you know, my dad is pretty far from the mothership. And so there are things that he knows in his work that may not be being communicated all the way up to the organization. And then here's Jim and Ed writing about empowered teams and this new thing called Japanese management. So work in America, I remember studying for exams and memorizing package passages. And I guess all the time things were getting in my head like there's, there's an untapped potential in the workers on the front line, the workers who really understand the work, and, there's, and the, the potential is to somehow align that and communicate that throughout the organization. At the same time, uh, I think it was Dan Costley said, why don't you go read a book on HR by uh, uh, John Slocum and Dan Hellriegel? And I did a project where I took their model and sort of wrote a paper about how that model might inform the way we manage organizations. That was probably my first introduction really to an HR textbook and the idea of the HR function. Um, and then I remember vividly watching videos in class. The, the one I loved best was, I think it was from Texas Instruments where they said, here's how management works traditionally. And they had someone throwing a ball down a bowling alley and there was a curtain in the middle. So you couldn't see what happened as the ball rolled past the curtain. But there was a manager there telling the person how well they did and giving them performance numbers. Um, and it just stuck with me that that, 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 that analogy and, and pull, pulling up the curtain was something that would be interesting to work on. And then as I got further on, uh, more recently, I think Hannon and Freeman, Organizational Ecology, has been a, a book that I think a lot about in terms of the boundaryless and, and, and sort of new idea of an organization. Uh, Hammer and Champion on reengineering the organization through process reengineering. That idea of getting, getting uh, clear about the processes in an organization has been something that really shaped my MBA thinking and has shaped my thinking with organizations. And then I'll give a shout out to Wayne, my very, very good colleague and friend who I'm just honored to work with. But costing human resources was uh, a book that I started reading in graduate school and a book that I had the pleasure of teaching from in my first uh, few classes at, uh, at Cornell University. And so that book and all of the ideas of utility analysis and the idea of putting a, uh, you know, putting a value on the investments we make in people and HR uh, was, again, it's a, a very, very significant shaper of my thinking. So that's a long-winded answer, uh, but hopefully helpful. Uh, Fascinating. Thank you. And I love the small world tie-in with Wayne Cassio will be our guest on the conversation series in April. So it's a small I do what world I can, in the world of I.O. <laughs> that was a perfect plug. Thank you. Um, okay. So we, we have another questioner here, another question from a listener here, Paul J., uh, about your work in both kind of the research and practice worlds. And so Paul would like to know, how do you believe we can best bridge the gap between scientist and practitioner? So again, that's a terrific question and, and one that I'm honored to have a humble opportunity to answer. Uh, obviously, you've had so many great interviews with uh, people in 
SIOP that are doing enormously good work in that area. I think virtually all the presidents of SIOP have, have provided some really deep thinking about that. And over on the management side in the, in, in the Academy of Management and, and also in the HR division, you know, I've had the privilege of listening to and, and, uh, and benefiting from folks like Denise Rousseau and others about this. It's a very big issue and, and, and uh, I'm delighted to see so many people attending to it. You know, for me, thinking about sort of how do, how do I think about that tangibly, it's a great question, how do we best do it? Uh, a question, though, that I think really doesn't have one best answer. So, uh, again, I'll give a, a plug to who I see on the pages is at the moment, a tentative date on Alexis Fink. But I think about all of those people like Alexis Allen Church and others that are actually in organizations as I.O. psychologists uh, doing, doing the work that I.O. psychologists do, answering the questions that organizations have. And I think that's one big answer is that, uh, you know, I, I, I'm delighted to see and I think it's a very good idea for SIOP to uh, uh, kind of expand its, um, uh, its inclusiveness to include folks like that and to elevate them to positions of prominence. Um, another one is kind of, I mentioned Denise Rousseau, over on the management side, there's a great deal of activity and, and uh, even a portal called the Center for Evidence-Based Management. And again, I'll, I'll mention Denise, who has, has done some terrific work over there. So there's also a kind of parallel idea about how we can get management to be more evidence-based and how we can bring research to the attention of leaders. And the Academy of Management is doing a great deal to organize some of its journals to give, um, you know, let's say more practitioner-oriented versions of, of research, et cetera. Um, there's also a set of folks, and, and you've interviewed some of them. I would, you know, Adam Grant is one of my favorites. I would also, so the, there are people out there who have the ear of leaders in organizations, um, and 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 that that organizations listen to independent, really, of the fact I think that they are researchers. So Adam would be a very good example. Uh, Amy Edmondson uh, would be another very good example of that kind of individual. Um, and Dan Pink would be another one. Um, and those are all three very, very different uh, individuals. I, I suppose I'm, I'm clearly not in, in their league, but I suppose you might put people like me in there. Uh, and there are folks that kind of can stand on each side of the academic and practitioner world. And in some ways, their job is to translate um, and, and to, to understand what gets the attention and the ear and the, and the trust of leaders and organizations. And I think one of the things that I think is important is to funnel uh, great research into the hands of folks like that. And, and very often, like Adam and Amy, they're very, uh, very uh, renowned scholarly researchers. And, and so again, I think that's, that's something that I'm not sure we do enough of is to look around and say, okay, who's got the Who's got the ear and the trust of leaders? What are they listening to, whether it's TED Talks or something like that? And then say, how do we get, how do we get really great research into the hands of those folks and empower them to be evidence-based as they, as they use their voice? That's something that I've humbly tried to do in my own work. Uh, you know, not, I'm not always absolutely successful in being true to the research. I'm not always absolutely successful in getting the ear of, of leaders. But when I think when I'm at my best, it's when I have both of those things working together. And finally, the other thing I would say is that uh, much as I love uh, the industrial psychology, IO psych world, um, it tends to see as its audience the HR function. And I'm, I've been privileged to work with HR for my whole career. 
but I think virtually every HR leader that I know, and certainly I would say, is that this, this, this work and workplace issue is moving beyond the HR function. Not that it won't be important, but I think it's very, very vital that, the, that's, that IO psychology begin to think about uh, its voice as it's being heard by leaders outside the HR function uh, and, and in areas that are beginning to impact work and the workplace that hopefully the HR function will, will include, but that may be outside of it right now. Broader C-suite in the broader management world, perhaps. Yeah, I think so. And other disciplines, you know, anthropology, um, uh, politics, uh, you know, we'll talk more a little bit about the, the way work is changing. But I think it's kind of that idea to be, I, I'm, I'm constantly telling the, you know, pointing out to the HR function how much more it can do if it's inclusive with other disciplines in, in, the, in the organization, even something like marketing operations, et cetera. And from a disciplinary standpoint, I'm seeing a lot of more potential and a lot more tangibility of bringing in um, anthropology, engineering, even things like architecture and that kind of thing around issues like culture and, and, uh, and you know, motivation and process design. Perhaps information science, decision science, mm -hmm. with a kind of yep, big exactly. technology uh, intersection. Yes. Fantastic. Yeah, that's, those well, are John, very good examples. Go ahead. Thank you. Yeah, the um, it's a it's a great dovetail, I think, into another kind of series of questions we have. We have uh, a variety of our listeners who are very eager to learn more about how you how you interact with your audience mm. and your um, your. Uh, people out in industry that you're working with, whether it's through applied research or as a strategic advisor or both. And so we actually have another question here from Kieran M. He drew the, the, the lucky um, lucky token today with two of his questions selected. So when, when working nice. as a strategic advisor, <clears throat> what are the questions that you ask, <clears throat> excuse me, before even starting a consulting project? And how do those differ from the questions you might ask before starting a research project or, or do they? So they, I think they do, and it was, again, I want to thank Karen. I'm going to just take Karen with me, I think, because um, <laughs> he's asking, or you, that's, that's so much fun. So, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I made a list of questions that I ask, and we'll see if they add up to anything. But So this is just kind of me brainstorming a little bit here. Um, so if I'm sitting across, so when I'm a, let's call it a strategic advisor, and I'm sitting across from very often, the head of HR or somebody that works for the head of HR, but in, increasingly uh, it might be someone in the C-suite like the general counsel or the CIO or the CEO or something like that. And, um, and, it, and, and so in those situations, uh, my, my, my first question is probably give me a very tangible example that shows, uh, that will illustrate for me why you called me or why you thought I could be helpful. Uh, like just tell me a story. Um, that, that, that says this is why we this is why we wanted to get in touch with you, and then once we have that example on the table, we, we're tangible enough that I can start to get specific with them, and say, well, okay, now tell me what is it about this example that I should be hearing that that tells me why this is so vital? You know, what's the issue that this example illustrates? And then once we have that issue on the table, uh, what would be tell me tell me how if we were successful at fixing this. What would change, and 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 what's the biggest difference you can tell me that you hope would happen if we were successful at dealing with the thing that produces these examples that are troubling you, um, and then now there and now we've got you know now we're having a good conversation and we've begun to get very tangible about what it is they wanted to work on, 
and kind of get past the jargon and past the, you know, sort of the broad bromides of, well, you know, we need better people or we can't find talent or whatever. Um, and so now with the issue on the table, I can say, well, why has it been, remained unresolved until now? And that usually gets me a, a really nice history, very often getting to the heart of something in the culture or some uh, un implicit assumptions or something like that that have been made that are now being questioned. Um, and then finally, you know, I must say kind of to make sure that I'm the right person in the room and that I'm not always am is to say, you know, kind of what did, what did you know about me that led you to think I might be helpful and that put us in this room? And, and that gives me a sense of uh, very often the answer is we don't know anything about you. You know, somebody in HR just said we should call you, which is fine. Um, but sometimes it's, you know, we read this thing you wrote or something like that and it really struck us that that idea you put out there would be helpful. And so that gives me a sense personally of where is the ground I'm standing on and where do we emanate from in terms of this strategy project. Um, so I think if you looked at the theme, for me it's sort of, number one, let's get past the big bromides and all that stuff, things that don't really mean anything to anybody, like better talent and winning the talent war and being more strategic and all that sort of thing. And get me stories, get me issues. So that's one theme. And then the other one is help me understand where what's the pivotal improvement that we hope to make here. And, and at least in, in having them articulate that. Um, and then finally, the last question allows me to do a little bit of um, contracting with them in the sense of understanding what it is they thought I was. And sometimes, honestly, the answer is that's not who I am but I can recommend some great folks for you. Uh, and then other times it's really helpful to say, well, great, you know, that is in my wheelhouse. And now let's start from there and see if we can work together. So that's the strategic advisor side. So I'm gonna give you a chance to get a word in edgewise here, or I can just continue and give you a few questions on the research side. Well, just the only thing I would say is thanks for that strategic advisory crash course from John Boudreau. That was great. Thank you. Please, please feel free to continue the research side. Feel free to use it, you know, uh, and, and, and write me when it works or doesn't work so I can make it better uh, to all those who are listening. So the, the, the questions on a research project, as it turns out, are kind of different. You know, if an organization comes to me, you know, through perhaps very often the center, like the Center for Effective Organizations at USC, where I'm working now, or the Center for Advanced HR Studies, which I was privileged to help found with Lee Dyer and George Milkovich back in the day at Cornell, and which I'm delighted to say continues to thrive uh, at Cornell. Those research centers, by the way, are very pivotal elements of my career. They, they really did give a number of us, but me, but they gave me the opportunity to really be working with business leaders, generally HR leaders or at the center more organization design or effectiveness leaders who come to the center with an idea that they want to connect with research and with researchers or in my faculty role where an organization would say, you know, we know that you do scholarly work. We came to you because you're a professor and a researcher and we want to think about a project. You know, that's kind of, that's a very different approach than uh, we've read your work and we, we think that if you came into our organization, you could help us with our goals, which is the first set of questions. So the second set of questions assumes that they've come and said, we know you're something called a researcher and we want to engage you in a, in a conversation about how research might, might be uh, mutually beneficial. So with them, I would say, you know, okay, you, you, somehow you, you identified me and somehow you have some issue in your mind. And the first thing I say is, could you frame that in the form of a question? And, and I might use the form to say, well, we think 
blank is causing blank something else, which leads to blank, which matters to us, and we'd like to understand those connections better. And I really push them to get their, the issue on the table in the form of a question about what affects what, because generally I find that that's going to be the form of the research that we end up doing. Um, and then, uh, a little bit similar, but why, why, is, why are these questions now important to you now? Uh, who will care about the results and, and, and what is your stake in the game here, kind of? You know, what is it that, what, why would you want to support research that would learn more about this question? And the answer is there can be anything from, you know, we believe in research and our company supports research. And, uh, and, 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 you know, we, we, we know this is an un, unanswered question. Like if I'm talking with an IO psychologist in a company, they may well say this is a question we don't know an answer to. We're interested in publishing about it, and we've managed to get our company on board. If I'm talking to a CEO or a head of HR, they'll often say we, need a, we want to answer this question more rigorously than we have before, and we'll care about it because we think it's going to help us uh, do something differently. Um, and then, you know, what led you to think that approaching this through the lens of scholarly research would be interesting or useful? You know, why aren't you talking with just, say, a consulting firm, or why didn't you come to me as a consultant? What is it about the research lens that is really interesting? And that's often very, very helpful to understand what they think they mean by rigor, why it's important to them to have um, the rigor and the reputation of a scholarly research study. Uh, and then finally, a few sort of contracting questions. What sort of data have you gathered and how have you analyzed it already? That begins to give me a sense of, you know, what, what, what data is already allowed and, and how sophisticated they are in terms of their analytical ability and their analytical team. And then, uh, you know, again, kind of contracting I would probably say, what, what kind of resources did you have in mind or imagine would be available from all the parties that would be supporting this research activity? And that kind of gives me a sense of how much, you know, how much, you know, of, uh, how much uh, human capital, financial capital, et cetera, they're willing to invest, what sort of a arrangement they had in mind. Did they think this was going to be for free because, uh, because they're going to be supporting the publication all the way to we're ready to give a big grant on this because it really matters to what we're doing. Um, yeah, so, and then, you know, and then we're off to the races, basically. But thanks for the question. It really was an interesting exercise for me to put each of my hats on and realize how the, my perspective differs a bit between the two. Fantastic. Thank you for that. The, um, the next question that we have from listener Christopher R. I think builds on what you just shared very, very nicely. It sounds like you're spending much of your time helping organizations frame up their questions and problems in a way that makes it easier for you to come in and solve them. And so being in the position where you're hearing a lot of these questions and problems from organizations yeah. across the world, what, what are some of the most problem, common problems <laughs> these organizations are facing? What are their goals for the future? How do IO psychologists fit into those goals? That is, yeah, so again, just a superb question, and I, I, I can't, you know, but I, I always learn more from these kinds of things than I could possibly ever impart, and I must say that I have to thank everybody for great questions. This one was a fun one to think about, too. Um, so one of the most common problems is an interesting question, and I, what I realized as I thought about it is that it, that's a bit of a, it's a terrific question, but it's also a Rorschach test on the individual. So the kinds of questions that I get are going to be very different from the kinds of questions that, you know, say, uh, I'm just reading down your list, Nancy Tippins would get, Talia Bauer would get, that Elaine would get, uh, you know, I know what David Peterson works on, 
uh, certainly different from what Adam Grant would get or Ed Lawler. So in part, you know, as I, I think it's interesting, as you ask anybody about the questions they get, it kind of reflects what the world thinks they're good at or what they're identified with. So with that caveat, right, I just sort of brainstormed, what do I hear about? And it isn't really in any particular order. I think it also depends on what I've been working on, like the, the latest book tends to create an upwelling of interest. God bless uh, my publishers and, 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 you know, and my co-authors for that. Um, and so right now, you know, uh, the, the latest couple of books that I wrote were on um, kind of new ways of working for humans, which was Lead the Work and a book called Reinventing Jobs that was about automation with my good colleague, Robin J. Sufasan at Willis Towers Watson. So I get a lot of questions about that, future of work, uh, how work, how humans and automation are going to work together, uh, how do we incorporate a more boundaryless uh, set of work options for humans, contracting, freelancing, pattern, uh, uh, platforms, volunteers, crowdsourcing, et cetera. And so I think part of it is kind of the, you know, it, it emanates from what people know I've written about. Um, certainly perennial issues of, at least since the recovery has started, talent shortages, um, skill evolution being faster than, than we can provide skills. Uh, there's, a, there's a theme out there about, democ I, I would call it democratized work, uh, a whole theme about how the, um, uh, not only is work becoming more democratic because the ways people can engage your organization are becoming greater. So the freelance workers are, have a different relationship and one might say a more democratic relationship in that they can move from company to company and they can, they can bargain for kind of the, the elements of their work relationship in, in different ways. Uh, certainly volunteers or crowdsourced workers represent a different kind of, of, of relationship. Uh, than, than standard hierarchical ones. And in addition, a good deal of questions about democratized work in the sense of voice and collectivity. Uh, so how do, we, how do we get our arms around what's happening at Google or even, Google's a good example of a collective uh, group of workers forming without, let's say, a formal union. And, uh, and that with social media, et cetera, that Arab Spring is kind of the classic example of that. And, it, and so, so that's one. And then another one is the fact that, that every, you know, every individual in an organization potentially has a voice that could reach millions of people with one blog or public publishing one letter, like the, like people that, you know, uh, about a year or two ago, people at Amazon published some letters about uh, how, you know, how hard the work was, people crying at their desks, et cetera. And, without any judgment about, you know, I'm not trying to make a judgment about Amazon's work situation, and I, I do work with them, but if the idea was that that person had a voice, they were essentially published all the way around the world. So that's kind of an interesting one, sort of big and thorny and one that leaders are kind of wrestling with. Um, uh, certainly diversity and inclusion, um, again, driven a bit by the Me Too movement, but really a much deeper idea about truly defining what we mean by inclusion and diversity around things like different points of view and, and, and how diversity affects work and teams and that kind of thing. And then um, sustainability, uh, triple bottom line, this idea of an organization's mission beyond sh just shareholder value. So those are, the, those are kind of, you know, everything from we have a talent shortage and we need skills to how is work changing to what is the mission of the modern organization are kinds of things that are, might be the initial question someone might raise with me that might lead to, you know, a project or a speaking engagement or a research project.
John, thank you. I, I know we are running up against time. We had several listeners submit questions around one of the topics you just raised. And so I'm wondering if we might be able to slide in one more question under the buzzer, even if it's just for a soundbite <laughs> from you on this one. Okay, I'll keep it to a soundbite. Thank you. Well, whatever, however, however uh, you want to answer it, it's totally fine with you here. Okay. So, um, <laughs> so we, we had several listeners who were curious for your thoughts on work automation. So questions around how do you see the workplace changing as work automation mm -hmm. becomes more popular, and how do you think that will change our roles as IO and HR professionals? So that one I can do pretty quickly for you. I mean, it's, it's obviously a big question, and we could go in some depth. Um, but here, here are the two sound bites. The first sound bite is that um, I think a wide, a wide range of the population of workers and leaders envisions work automation through the lens of jobs and job holders and is asking questions like how many of our, how many people in this job will be displaced by automation? That virtually never happens and virtually never will. It's not that it never happens, but, the, but one, one significant soundbite is this is a future of, of humans plus automation. And it's a future where parts of work in a job get automated, but the rest of the parts still need to be done by humans. And it raises really interesting questions, like if the human is doing only 70% of the work they did before, but the automation has made the human three times more valuable, do you pay the person 70% of what they got before or three times what they got before? That is, that is one of a whole bunch of questions once you realize that it's humans plus automation. Uh, questions like what is the psychology of collaborating with AI? And many, many workers now, when they work with artificial intelligence, describe it not as a tool, not as a threat, but as a collaborator, a part of their team, a part of their social network. So humans plus, not, not humans, in, not automation instead. And then secondly, this pattern is only visible if we're willing to take, take jobs and deconstruct them into their elements. And we know virtually nothing yet about a work system where the jobs have been deconstructed and the pieces are allowed to form and reform and be automated or be done by contractors or others. So the notion of deconstructing jobs, kind of like ONET does, and ONET is a very popular source of deconstruction in the research now. So it's going to be humans plus automation, and the patterns are going to be visible only if we have the courage to take the jobs apart and let the pieces live on their own. And there are very few, I think, certainly human resource systems that can deal yet with that idea of deconstructed work. The final one I'll say is you don't have to boil the ocean. The future is unevenly distributed, and traditional work in jobs is going to be just fine for a lot of the work out there. But there are some really interesting places where that model isn't working. And in those places, I think IO psychology has immense value to add in helping organizations and really the whole, the whole work ecosystem the whole work ecosystem, excuse me, uh, apply some of the principles we know to this new world of deconstructed and reinvented work. Completely fascinating. John, thank you. We, uh, we're in the 
the position we seem to always be in here on the conversation series where we have uh, many, many more listener questions that came in <laughs> of what people would love to learn from you than unfortunately we had time to get through today. But on behalf of, of SIOP, the Visibility Committee, and all of our listeners, John, I, I just want to thank you for such an enlightening conversation, for taking the time to speak with us, and for your immense contributions to our field and the world of work. Well, thank you, Kelly. You are very, very kind. Every, everything I've done is standing on the shoulders of great people that uh, took a chance on me. So it's a, it's a pleasure to kind of reminisce a little bit. And you did a great job today. Thank you very much. And thanks to Kelsey as well for all her, all her help. Many, many thanks. And listeners, thank you all for joining today's conversation. Please join us for our next conversation on February 19th with Alexis Fink, who leads people analytics at a little company called Facebook. And in the meantime, as we are populating our list of guests for 2020, we'd love to know who you'd love to have a conversation with who's leading the world of work. Please submit your wish list guests to us for 2020 at SIOPConversationSeries at gmail.com. Again, all one word, SIOPConversationSeries at gmail.com. Until next time, take care. <laughs>